Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the Evil Economics Edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, my Alphaville colleague Matt Klein takes the hosting reins and interviews Princeton historian Stephen Kotkin, who's got a new book called Stalin, Waiting for Hitler. Matt, how are you? Good, Cardiff. How are you? All right, we're going to set this up for our listeners. Uh, first of all, that title, that is really, really dark. Well, the book basically takes place from 1929, which is when Stalin first feels like he's in charge of the Soviet Union and ends on the day of the German invasion on June 21st, 1941. So a big part of the book is seeing how these two very different men, Stalin and Hitler, in charge of two countries that after the Versailles Peace Treaty of 1919, uh, rebuild their countries, initially cooperate, and then end up fighting each other in one of the most violent episodes in human history. Uh, Tell me a little bit about Stephen Kotkin. Uh, How did he become interested in this black as night topic? Basically, he was a Russian historian, and I mean, he's written other books about Russian history. He wrote a, a looking actually at sort of the nature of Soviet society and understanding how ideology played a role at the mass level and how it was, especially in the early period, including in the period of this book, how a lot of young people in the Soviet Union were inspired to do both impressive things like building factories in the middle of nowhere and horrible things like murdering their superiors en masse because of their belief in this ideology. So I think you go from there to the fact that a lot of archives and archival material that hadn't necessarily been available before became available relatively recently. And the fact that no one has really written a solid biography of Stalin trying to place a, his career in the context of world history and so it made sense for him to, to do this. So the first volume came out three years ago. It's very good. It covers basically the first 50 years of Stalin's life, the first 40 of which he's not really doing a whole lot. He's either in some Siberian prison camp or robbing banks in Georgia. But it does a very good job of placing Stalin in context and giving you a sense of what's going on in Russia, what's going on in the world. And it basically ends with him having, over the course of the 1920s, become sort of the indispensable person in the Soviet leadership and getting more and more power because he's the one who's best, most capable of actually getting things done and organizing the party where the other, his colleagues, for the most part, are just content to let him do this. And then what this book starts with is sort of the first big policy decision he makes at really pushing the Soviet Union in the direction that Lenin and others would have wanted but felt they needed to wait, which was the collectivization of agriculture. Collectivization of agriculture is a term that if you don't know what it actually involves, it's not really clear what it means. In practice, it essentially means that the government enslaved the peasantry, which was the majority of the Soviet population, and said, you will not own land, you will not be able to leave the land, you will not be able to keep anything you produce basically in excess of subsistence. You will give everything to us, we will export it to foreigners so that we can get hard currency for importing industrial equipment. And that required an immense amount of violence to put this policy into practice, but Stalin did it. And that's, that's 
how the book starts and then everything sort of flows from there and sort of tracing that up until how that policy led ultimately to the cooperation with, with Germany and then eventually uh, the involvement in World War II. Did anything about this interview surprise you? One of the big historical debates about this period that Kotkin does a very good job, I think, of resolving is whether or not the famine associated with this collectivization process was deliberate or simply a consequence of the fact that taking land from peasants and not giving them any incentive to work leads to lower agricultural yields. And there's a narrative that's been around for a very long time, I think in part because of the historical Ukrainian cooperation with the Nazis when they first invaded, that the famine was a deliberate targeting of ethnic minorities, particularly Ukrainians. And Kotkin makes the point, this is probably not right. And we talk about this a bit in the interview, but essentially everyone in the Soviet Union starved to varying degrees. The actual death rate from starvation was highest by far in Kazakhstan, where about a third of the people died. It's like 90% of the livestock, which is much worse than Ukraine. You had a lot of ethnic Russians starving. The people enforcing the policies in Ukraine were ethnic Ukrainians. Stalin tried to the extent that he either could or, or, or what have you to actually provide food aid to places that were starving. So the idea that the famine was deliberate rather than sort of an inevitable consequence of this Leninist policy uh, is something that I think he, he shoots down pretty conclusively. But it is a controversial historical issue, and it has been ever since the early 1930s. Matt Klein, always shedding light on a really dark history. Here is Matt's interview with Stephen Kotkin. Enjoy. Professor Stephen Kotkin, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for the opportunity. The current volume you have starts on the eve of a transformation in Soviet society that was imposed through great violence. Can you give us a sense of first setting the scene of, of what led to that situation and then, and then why Stalin imposed the change they did? So maybe starting just briefly and sort of what happened after the end of the Russian Civil War. Well, what you got in 1917 are multiple revolutions that are non-intersecting to a certain degree. You have an urban-based socialist revolution, which the Bolsheviks undertake a coup within. The Bolshevik coup is against the rest of the left. It's not against the moribund provisional government. It's against the Soviet or people's power. And so this coup becomes an urban-based revolution known as Bolshevism. They changed their name to the Communist Party in 1918. Then there's a separate peasant revolution. After the downfall of the Tsar in February 1917, the peasants seize the land and expropriate the gentry class. They essentially become de facto, but not de jure, owners of the land of the Russian Empire, the former Russian Empire now. And then there's a national or borderlands revolution where the pieces of the former empire break off and become autonomous or independent under German occupation, etc., the urban-based Bolshevik revolution comes up with a solution for the borderlands separate revolution by creating this brand new thing called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, where there are states, republics, known as Union Republics, but they form into a federation known as the Soviet Union. This is an elegant solution from their point of view. There's a great degree of coercion involved in it, but Stalin is central to that process. The more difficult prospect was what to do with the peasant revolution, the separate peasant revolution where they became de facto owners of the land and in Marxist terms, a petit bourgeois class. 
The Marxists did not think that this class should be there or would be there going into the future, but there it was. And so all during the 1920s, there was a debate. We need to industrialize. How are we going to pay for industrialization? Foreign financing seemed impossible because the Bolsheviks had repudiated the czarist government debts, the provisional government debts, and they didn't anticipate being able to take foreign financing. And in any case, they were self-avowed socialists. So the idea of taking the capitalists' money was also problematic to a certain degree. So they began to talk about squeezing the peasants, squeezing the peasants for financing for industrialization. In other words, the harvest was the single most important factor in the wealth and well-being of the country. And if the harvest got bigger and they took a greater piece of it from the peasants, they could have financing, internal financing, for the industrialization that they dreamed about, which was the future in any case and the universal working class. But in the meantime, they didn't control the countryside in that way, and the peasants made their own decisions about land. And you had about 25 million peasant household proprietors post-1917 through the 1920s. The other piece of this is that they're Marxists, just like you said. And for them, you can't build a socialist regime, a socialist superstructure, on top of a capitalist or petty bourgeois base. That the political structure is determined ultimately by the economic base. And if the economic base is capitalist and is private landowning, even uh, de facto, and if it's petty bourgeois, then the socialist regime cannot last. It cannot endure in a situation where the base doesn't correspond to socialism. So between the two imperatives that they felt, one financing the industrialization that all of them agreed was necessary, and two, getting them a socialist base, a socialist economic base, not just in the city, but also in the countryside. This is where they came up with the idea of collectivization. So what drove that decision? The original compromise was in the early 1920s. As you mentioned, there was a debate throughout the 20s. The decision to act didn't come until 1928. So what, what were the factors that sort of drove that decision to happen when it, when it was made? Yeah, the debate was conclusive about the need to go to a socialist base in the countryside, collectivize agriculture. Nobody in the Bolshevik regime thought that markets and private property were okay. Markets and private property were evil. They were alienation. They were enslavement. They were chaos and economic crises or depressions. And so they all agreed that they needed to get to the socialism in the countryside. But they disagreed on when, how that could be achieved. The timing was driven by a couple of factors. One was the socialist regime in the cities was very inept at regulating the quasi-market economy of the new economic policy. They used coercion uh, periodically, arbitrarily, unpredictably, which, of course, is a great disincentive for market economic activity. And so they were ruining the very thing that they were debating whether it should last or should end. In other words, they were not fully capable 
of extending the new economic policy indefinitely, even if some people argued that you should extend it for a greater time period. And the other factor was Stalin's personal rule. Once he had achieved uh, dominance, in his view, internal at the top of the regime and had uh, forced Trotsky into internal exile, once Stalin had achieved that, he took a trip to Siberia and he said, essentially, we're going to now collectivize agriculture. And everyone was flabbergasted. You have to be joking. We're never going to do this. And it would be lovely if we could pull it off, but it's just, it's kind of a dream castle. Now, the final piece of Stalin's motivation was that the state did not have enough grain that it was able to get from the countryside in order to feed the cities and the army, let alone finance the industrialization. And that's because the peasants were holding the grain they harvested, hoping for a better price, acting what you might call rationally in, in economic terms, but the regime saw this as sabotage. He enslaved about 120 million people who were living in the countryside at the time, to the astonishment of everyone, except maybe himself, and produced collective ownership of the land and collective working of the land. It was a kind of proletarianization of the peasant class. And of course, they couldn't leave the collective farms. So there's an enslavement element to it. The fact that he did this, as I said, astonished everyone. The critics who wanted collectivization to happen but feared enacting it because of the negative consequences, they were proven correct. There was yet another horrific famine, 1931 through 33, in which five to seven million people died of, of starvation and disease. Nonetheless, collectivization succeeded politically, even though it was catastrophic. I want to talk more about the process of collectivization because, as you mentioned, this was essentially unrestricted warfare on the peasantry that led to returning them to a state of serfdom, effectively. And this process involved a lot of violence. It also involved, it involved starvation, as, as you just said, but it also involved a lot of state-directed violence. How was this actually brought about and what were sort of the concrete changes and what the typical lifestyle peasant from, say, 1927 to 1934 one of the reasons people were skeptical, including Bolshevik leaders besides Stalin, were skeptical that they could collectivize the countryside was that the regime didn't have a big presence in the countryside. If you were in Moscow or uh, Leningrad, the new name for St. Petersburg after 1924, or in any major provincial city, Yekaterinburg, which became Sverdlovsk in the Urals, Kiev, it was red. It was red everywhere, red flags, red, you know, red banners and slogans and a sense that the regime was in charge and this was a socialist country. If then you left the big city and went out a little bit, 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers, 150 kilometers from the big city, you would be hard-pressed to find that those red banners and those slogans. That's not to say there were alternative forms of politics in the localities. There weren't. But the regime didn't have a big physical presence or a big bureaucracy in the countryside. So the idea of an urban-based regime transforming the socioeconomic landscape across 11 time zones and a sixth of the earth, 120 million people, right, more than 25 million households, this idea seemed fantastic. So how did they do it? Well, Stalin came up with the idea of de 
or expropriation of the better-off peasants. In other words, he would instigate class warfare. So collectivization was enacted through dekulakization. In other words, the mass violence was not a byproduct of the process. You know, they, they told everybody to go into the collective farms and there was some resistance and therefore there was some violence. The violence was the instrument in order to carry this out. And so they, they, they sought to divide the villages, arrest and deport, and in some cases execute the better-off peasants. Of course, the definition of better-off peasant was variable and, and determined locally. There were quotas for how many kulaks each community was supposed to have, and sometimes there weren't enough. And so others had to be rounded up to meet the quotas. Sometimes poor peasants defended the better-off peasants, and there was intra-class, as it were, peasant solidarity. However, if you were a poor peasant and defended the better-off peasants, you would get arrested as a kulak, even though you didn't fit the definition in socioeconomic terms. So this massive upheaval, this instigation of class warfare, did meet some popular appeal. There were people who were happy to instigate class warfare, to be the ones who were poor yesterday and would take over the village today. But there was also peasant solidarity against this process. Several million people were deported. About 20,000 or so heads of households were summarily executed on the spot. And the collectivization was achieved. There were a couple of other pieces. They sent urban activists, young male urban activists, into the countryside. They were known as 25,000ers because about 25,000 of them had been recruited for this task. And so they were enforcers of collectivization, including dekulakization or picking out kulaks. They used internal troops, the troops of the uh, Interior Ministry or the secret police, which was then known as the GPU or OGPU. And so the regime had instruments from the urban part that were forced into the countryside and that they used them to enact collectivization. But it was really this instigation of class warfare. And so the harvests were lower because there was the accident of poor weather, a drought followed by torrential rains, which is the worst thing you can have in the countryside, but mostly because Stalin put the country on a knife edge so there was no slack in the system should the weather go bad. And there was this terrible famine, which his policies caused, because no matter how bad the weather was, if there were good policies, the people wouldn't have starved. And yet, on the other side of it, by 1934, they had full control over the countryside, and the vast majority of it was under collectivization. However, it didn't pay for industrialization. The windfall that they expected by squeezing the countryside to pay for the import of latest and greatest technology from European and American firms didn't materialize. And the costs, as I said, were very great in human terms. They also lost their livestock. The livestock losses are staggering in addition to the human losses. And so it was an economic blow, a self-inflicted economic blow. But it achieved one piece. It didn't achieve the financing of industrialization, but it achieved the other piece, which was the socioeconomic underpinning of the socialist regime itself becoming socialist. So one of the 
points that you make is that they they believed in part that this collectivized form of agriculture would somehow not just finance industrialization, but also because of you know the virtues of Marxist organization would be more efficient and and improve agricultural yields. That's a that's not what actually happened. I mean, as you described, even on the eve of World War II, they were producing less grain than they were before World War One. It's very striking as as a consequence of this. You're right. They never recovered from this self-inflicted blow. And they were importing wheat from Canada, Argentina, and the United States all through the Brezhnev period. When I first encountered the super-secret archives of the Brezhnev years, what was in them? What was I going to find in there? They were declassified at a certain point later on after the fall of the Soviet Union, and so we had access to them. And what was in there was importing food from the capitalist West. They were ashamed of it, and they were importing it in very substantial numbers at high cost. Right? Big imports of grain, livestock, or meat. And so, yeah, they never recovered. However, I have to say, some parts of it were taking place in a different form in the rest of the world. There was a move from smaller family farms whose scale is insufficient sometimes for mechanization, for agronomy. There was a move globally from that to larger aggregated, what we would today call agribusiness, where you could achieve efficiencies of scale. This was part of the Marxist understanding. Stalin was saying, we'll never be able to compete if we have these tiny family-oriented farms. We need scale. But we can't do scale the American way because that's a Kulak farm. That's a private farm. That's one person enriching themselves and everyone else working as wage slaves for that particular person. So we need to achieve scale in socialist fashion through collectivization. At first, the farms were so big, the aggregations, the collectivized farms were so big that entire counties were collectivized. But this was impossible to manage. They had a dearth of managerial skills to begin with in the countryside. That would take a lot more time. But they organized or misorganized themselves on too big a scale. By 35 and 36, they began to stabilize the situation at the lower level. Eventually, they would raise the harvests. The harvest data were exaggerated. The published data uh, through the late uh, 1930s onto on the eve of the war. But nonetheless, the si system had stabilized itself, but it was inefficient. And they knew this because there were critiques, internal critiques that they didn't make public about the lack of incentive mechanisms for the peasants, meaning they, they wouldn't work harder because they couldn't keep more of the harvest. But the regime would try to make concessions on that. But every time they made concessions, it would be towards something called household plots where the peasants could work their own garden plots, and those would grow because the peasant would prefer to work for the household the way it was before collectivization rather than for the collective farm while using the implements or the horses or the seed and the fertilizer of the collective farms. So in a way, the household plots that were conceded to the peasants and were parasitic on the collectivization economy, were growing too much for the regime. So they could have fed the country, and to a certain extent they did. About one-third of the potato crop, for example, was just peasant household plots rather than collective farms. But that was creeping capitalism. So Stalin was constantly trying to 
eradicate or at least reduce the household plot sector. So you have this anti-capitalism continuing within the collectivization process that makes it further inefficient or less productive overall. So it's a grand tragedy. Once again, a success in Marxist political terms, but a tragedy for the peasantry, obviously, and ultimately for the country. So speaking more about the costs of this policy, the famine obviously led to millions of human deaths, and you mentioned the destruction of livestock. There's a big historical debate about the extent to which the famine itself was deliberate in the way that the violence was deliberate. What, what is your perspective on that? You know, I'm an evidence-based person. I understand that communism was evil. I have a long track record of publication. There is no equivocation whatsoever on the criminality of this regime. But once again, what are the facts? What does the evidence say? What you have is the idea of absolute evil. And absolute evil is the Holocaust. And there is no question that that was intentional and that those people were murdered because of who they were in assembly line fashion. And then there are attempts to equate communism with that absolute evil. And so you look for intentionality on the communist side. Murder as a policy, exterminationist policy, rather than extermination or death as an unintended consequence of policy or only a partly intended consequence of policy and partly unintended. So the story that I tell in Volume 2, Waiting for Hitler, which is rooted in a very comprehensive study of the original source material, the source material is completely damning of the regime. There is no exculpation in the source material whatsoever. You could not come away reading those famine documents and regime policy documents with anything other than the impression that this was a criminal regime that caused this vast death. At the same time, there are no documents indicating intentionality that they, for example, that Stalin wanted to starve the people on purpose because they were Ukrainian or they were peasant, that he intentionally or he was even happy that they were dying. We don't have such documents. In fact, we have the opposite. Strange as it may seem, we have a situation in which Stalin is grudgingly under pressure, conceding he's lowering the quotas for grain delivery in the areas affected by famine. He's releasing from reserves aid. Not enough, too late, grudgingly every time. But if he intended them all to die, why is his signature on these documents grudgingly releasing aid or reducing their quotas to deliver grain? And the only answer can be that he didn't intend for them to die. This doesn't make him a better person. It doesn't make him a less evil ruler. It does, however, comport with the facts that we have from the documentation. So let's take for example, the ethnic part of the famine story. The greatest percentage of deaths occurred in Kazakhstan, which was a nomadic and semi-nomadic population that they forced into a sedentary life. 
It's not the greatest in absolute deaths, probably between a million, a million and a half. Now, there's no argument in the literature that Stalin intentionally committed a genocide against the Cossacks. We don't have that argument. We have instead an argument that he intentionally committed a genocide against the Ukrainians. Ukrainians also died in very high numbers, absolute numbers and percentage numbers of the population. Ukrainian officials enforced the collectivization policy in many places. So then we have to explain how it is that ethnic Ukrainians are carrying out a supposed genocide. We also see that villagers didn't always define themselves in pure ethnic terms. Some were Russified Ukrainians, some were Eastern Orthodox as they identified themselves. The death in provinces of Ukraine didn't understand who was a Ukrainian, who was a Russified Ukrainian, who could potentially be an ethnic Russian, who was a product of a mixed marriage. Right? Regime officials at the time had a hard time, in some cases, differentiating these people. And so the idea that they could have picked that, them out. Let's remember, Russians are dying in provinces of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Now, Ukrainians died in greater numbers than Poles and Jews in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. There's no question that that happened. Well, Poles and Jews lived in greater numbers in the cities, which also starved, but to a less extent than the countryside. And so when one looks at the data, and I could go on and I could go on and we could go through the citations and we could speak about the specific documents. In fact, it looks like the data are difficult because during a mass famine with mass death, accurate statistics about mortality and cause of death and location of death are difficult to come by uh, because the very people charged with recording the statistics are themselves starving to death in some cases or dying of disease. So we wouldn't want to put too much emphasis on these statistics. We have to be careful with them. But nonetheless, there seems to be a correlation between where the drought was the worst and where the mortality was the highest. That doesn't mean that the drought caused the famine. It meant that those areas where the drought put the population on a knife edge, the regime's policies caused those people in the more vulnerable areas to die at a higher rate. Then there's a discussion about Stalin blocked people from fleeing the starving villages, and therefore that constitutes an act of genocide. There was no food in the villages they were located in. They tried to run away, and the secret police, the Ogepeu, stopped them and forced them back to their villages. Well, we have the numbers on that, and it's something like 180,000, 200,000 that the police recorded interdicting and moving back. And you have about 17 million rural folk in Ukraine at the time. So this is not to say, once again, that we don't have a criminal regime here. We have a criminal regime. But the interdiction of movement is a number in the low 200,000s. And the rural population of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic is above 17 million. And so we can't see that, once again, as a systematic policy of genocide. We can instead see it as a panic on the part of the regime 
that the collectivization process would unravel because the peasants were fleeing the collective farms and a desire to enforce, you know, keep collectivization that had been achieved at this high cost. And also a lot of the people fleeing were spreading disease. So you could argue that there were health considerations in the inhuman interdiction of these people. So five to seven million people total died in this famine. And at least 50 million and probably more than 70 million people starved and survived. So that's a pretty incredible, horrific event when you're talking about a population of 160 million or 170 million total, right? So I understand what took place here, but the evidence for intentional genocide is lacking. After this traumatic process more or less came to its conclusion by 34 or 35, it's probably fair to say that Soviet society and Soviet economy more or less conformed whatever it was that Stalin had wanted to achieve and that whatever that society looked like was because he defined himself as the true pupil of Lenin and a real believer in Marxist-Leninism. This is a society, probably the first society at this time that really was shaped to look like a Marxist-Leninist society. What were some of the main features of what that looked like by the time you get to the mid-30s? Yeah, so Marx wrote about freedom. He wrote about the end of exploitation, the end of alienation, peace, abundance, social justice. Fantastic. How amazing all of that would be. He also wrote about the evils of capitalism. Markets are evil. Private property is evil. Uh, hiring other people is wage slavery. All of this is evil. How you were supposed to eliminate the bourgeoisie, destroy whole classes, that is, eradicate capitalism completely, and get to freedom and abundance was unclear. But that was the theory. Well, they eradicated the capitalism. They stamped out legal markets. Illegal markets mushroomed all over the place. They stamped out private property. And what did they get? They got what you would expect, complete statization and despotism. And many Marxists were shocked. They said, but this isn't what Marx said. It's kind of like dropping a nuclear bomb. You're going to drop a nuclear bomb on a country and you insist that you're going to minimize civilian casualties. You're deeply, sincerely committed to minimizing civilian casualties, but you're also deeply, sincerely committed to dropping the nuclear bomb. And then you drop the bomb and lo and behold, civilian casualties all over the place. And you said, well, I didn't intend to kill all those people. I wanted the opposite. And that's true. That Your intention was the opposite. But you shouldn't have dropped the nuclear bomb in the first place. If you wanted to avoid the civilian casualties, you should have not dropped the bomb. Same with eradication of markets, private property, and you know capitalism. If you want to get to freedom and abundance, that's not the way. You're not going to get to the picture that Marx painted when he said that needed to be done. And so there was some shock on the left that this was the outcome, and then denial. Outside the Soviet Union, and to a smaller extent inside the Soviet Union, there was denial that this was really socialism. Because after all, look what Marx said. He didn't say that more than 100 million peasants were going to be enslaved in collective farms. He said that alienation would end, exploitation would end. 
that freedom would prevail and there would be abundance. So they got the economy that you would get if you eradicated capitalism, which means that it was very perverse in some ways and very dysfunctional, but in other ways it had a kind of logic. And that logic was driven by quantitative output totals. So how much steel do we need in order to make trucks or tanks or whatever it might be? Let's determine how much steel and let's order our factories collectively to make that much steel and let's reward them for the quantitative output. So now, as you know from manufacturing, you need different sizes. You need different weights. Right? If you're making a car or a refrigerator or a tank or an airplane or whatever it might be, you need all manner of shapes and sizes. But the incentives in a planned economy, in a non-capitalist economy, are these quantitative outputs. And so the factories produced the heaviest stuff they could in order to get the bonuses that came with meeting the quantitative or exceeding the quantitative targets. And then the customers of the steel would receive not the smaller sizes and the various shapes that they needed to build the cars or the tanks. They received instead these big, gigantic, overweight, not what they ordered pieces. So they then had to machine down the steel that they received in order for them to manufacture what they needed to manufacture. So the GDP was higher because there had been more steel output, and moreover, the wasted steel that they had been incentivized to produce was then recycled back into the system as scrap and brought out again through the manufacturing process through the steel plant as heavy weighted output to raise their quantitative output production so that they could meet their quotas. So the GDP is growing, but the inefficiencies are nearly endless inside this system. But there was a logic to this. Everyone knew that it would be their head if they didn't meet their quantitative output production. So the car factory had to produce the number of cars, no fewer. Otherwise, not just loss of bonuses might ensue, but loss of freedom, imprisonment might ensue. But what if their suppliers didn't deliver the inputs that were necessary? So the manufacturers had to go wheel and deal on the side illegally, exposing them to potential imprisonment for illegal activity in order to meet the legal requirements, the quantitative output targets that had been imposed on them by the central ministries for the cars. And so each manufacturer became, as it were, an illegal entrepreneur in the system. And they began to hoard those things which were scarce or anticipated might be scarce in the next round or the next round or the next round after that. So it might be ball bearings or it might be rubber or it might be you name it. And so the manufacturers became, as it were, warehouses of all sorts of goods. Some were not even their own inputs, but they had high value on the barter market. So even if you didn't have ball bearings as an input at your factory, if you could get your hands on ball bearings, they were a valuable illegal commodity to trade 
on this black market or shadow economy, as it was called. So the market came back illegally in order to meet the quantitative output targets after they eradicated capitalism and got this socialist economy. And of course, the people at the time understood how perverse this was. The central ministries, which were then known as commissariats, had report after report, which one can go into the archives and read, about how crazy this activity was. In some cases, shoe factories were buying their own shoes a thousand kilometers away because their allocation of shoes for their own workers was insufficient to meet demand. And illegally, they had to then go trade for their own shoes, which had been shipped out a thousand kilometers away to bring them back to put shoes on the feet of their own workers. So that was the planned economy. In other words, it wasn't predicted it would come out this way, but in hindsight, one would expect something perverse like this. But it there was a way in which it worked in practice. The greater the military applications, the easier it was for them to focus on quality and to make the quality a little bit higher and to prioritize. So they were able to prioritize, that is to focus and concentrate and inspect and improve a small part of the larger economy. And so the farther you were away from military applications in some ways, the worse off you were in terms of quality or in terms of efficiency. And so they could then produce the tanks and they produced the fighter aircraft and the bombers. They produced the artillery at great cost, sometimes at greater cost than the value on the market for those products. But they were sufficient to defend the country against the artillery tanks or fighter aircraft of the capitalists or the foreigners. So in some ways, people heralded the industrialization because it achieved the status of a competitive military power by the mid to late 1930s. And of course, they will win World War II, which I haven't written that piece of the story yet. And they will do that in terms of production in the factories. They'll win World War II as well as on the battlefield. So it is a kind of crazy, cockamamie story of economic misorganization that nonetheless had a logic if you were inside the system. So one of the things I found really fascinating reading this account is that despite the real ideological commitment and despite all the unusual features of the system that you just described, there are a few key areas where the Soviet economy retained at least some market-like features. Most obviously and striking to me is the fact that they used money. Urban workers were paid in wages. The government budgeted by thinking in terms of rubles. That was the standard way of allocating resources. There were among urban workers, not among the agricultural workers, but among urban workers, you could quit your job and hiring managers would actually sometimes compete when there were labor shortages of trying to poach workers from one factory to another, which is not something that we associate with the, the way a centrally planned state works. The government would issue bonds to workers. Again, it's not like the way bonds would work in, in sort of a European context or an American context, but it was you know, the fact that they bothered to go through that. You know, they, People would buy bonds. They would get interest payments, and they retained some sort of bourgeois luxuries, whether it was restaurants or things like the ballet or the opera. How did the ideologists fit these features in and reconcile them with what they were trying to accomplish? With difficulty. 
one of the pieces in volume two, the Waiting for Hitler volume, is Stalin explaining why money is still important. And he had to explain it to Marxists. I mean, he's doing it at a central committee plenum. That is a plenary session of the innermost circles of the regime. And he's talking about how we can make money work for socialism. So when these things like hiring laborers and paying wages and incentivizing workers with better wages and using money, retail trade, right? The original idea was what they called distribution. There was no idea at the beginning that they would have shops to buy and sell products and that there would be things like supply and demand. There would instead be a planner who would determine how many of whatever you needed and then assign those goods to people. They discovered they needed retail trade and they had to then, the ideologists, Stalin included, then had to make speeches about how we're going to have socialist trade and how it was going to work and why it was necessary. They did this with the family. For a while, they thought they were going to eradicate the family, that the family was a bourgeois invention and therefore people wouldn't live in self-contained apartments with uh, bathrooms and with kitchens. The children wouldn't be raised by the parents. Instead, they would live in communal apartments by design, meaning there would be dormitory-style uh, bathrooms and kitchens at the end of a hall or even in the next building, and the children would go off to a nursery and the parents wouldn't be responsible for their upbringing necessarily. And then they discovered, or they argued, or they told themselves that actually the family predated capitalism the family existed under feudalism and even before feudalism in the primitive economies in the mists of time. And so therefore the family was compatible with socialism too. And the children would be raised by the parents. There might be nurseries, but the children would live with their parents. There would be uh, bathrooms and kitchens built inside their self-contained apartments. So they ceased building new apartments that were communal for the most part, and they began to build what could only be called bourgeois family apartments. This is the mid to late 1930s under the socialist regime. And that was pitched as, once again, the family was compatible with socialism because it predated capitalism. The same argument, as I said, was made with money and with the retail trade or the various other. Not only did they keep some of these bourgeois institutions. But as you said, in, in, in a few cases, they became status symbols or they allowed them to be understood as luxury goods. They sent officials to the United States and elsewhere to investigate, for example, retail trade. Mikayan, Anastas Mikayan, commissar under Stalin, discovered refrigeration in the United States on a trip there in the late 1930s. And so this making peace with aspects of capitalism was quite difficult, but fundamentally property relations could not be capitalist. They could not have private property and legal markets, otherwise they would have capitalism. So if the socioeconomic base was socialism, then other things which were less decisive, maybe we could make concessions on. They never made a concession 
on legal markets and private property in the Soviet Union on a mass scale. There were some such concessions in Eastern Europe, the Hungarian services industry, the Polish peasantry was never collectivized, although they did try, they gave up. So just to clarify, the defining line between allowing the use of money on one side, for example, or allowing peasants to control, to keep the surplus of what they produce, the distinction is that one is about who is owning the means of production and the other one is simply something that looks capitalist but doesn't actually affect power relationships. Is that a fair way of... Yes, that's precisely right. So I want to shift now to what I think would be best described as sort of Soviet macro policy. And I mean, we've talked a lot about their perspective on how resources should be allocated among different sectors of the economy and, and regulations and the central plan. But there's some really interesting sections, both in, in volume two, the new book, and in your first book that touch on issues that are particularly interesting in light of more recent experience in other countries. So in the 1920s, in the mid-1920s, you take a fair amount of time describing a debate between economic planners who, on the one hand, you have a group of people who are concerned about full employment, and they think that the factories should be running at maximum capacity, even if that might produce a lot of inflation. And then you have another group of people, including Stalin, who think that actually the priority should be stable money, maintaining the gold standard, and even if that means high unemployment and balanced budgets. Can you give us more of a sense of what that episode was like? This is a problem of all dictatorships. It's often the case that they are on the populist side. In other words, they'll print money, they'll allow inflation, they'll indulge the people, in part because they're insecure about their power. And what happens, of course, are the negative consequences that flow from such populist economic policies. The hyperinflation potentially has a destabilization. They get themselves into trouble. We see this pattern again and again with authoritarianism. Of course, this is not solely authoritarian regimes that undergo this. But nonetheless, it's quite characteristic of them. But the Soviet Union went the other way. The Soviet Union had a harder macroeconomic policy for a very long period of time, which meant they tried to combat inflation. They tried to keep inflation low, even if that meant that there were societal costs that they would have to pay. Because for them, the books, the balance of the regime, the regime's ability right, to fund the things it needed to fund, whether it was eventually later on to borrow internationally or to conduct contracts, to sign contracts with individual firms, individual companies that had technology that they were going to sell. The Soviet Union wanted to prove itself a reliable partner that pays its debts and that manages its macroeconomic policies properly. And Stalin was a proponent of this. Stalin's understanding of markets was not deep. He had a primitive view of markets in general. I think there's quite a lot of evidence in both of my books about this. But at the same time, he understood government finances as a matter of government power and stability. And therefore, uh, he paid attention to them. He paid attention, for example, to gold reserves. He paid attention to all sorts of flows that affected the stability and the reliability of the regime. Now, remember, they paid their debts on time, and they didn't default when many other countries that were equally as poor defaulted, in part because 
of the deprivation domestically. Right? They were able, as an authoritarian regime, to impose massive deprivation on the urban as well as the rural population. So that macroeconomic stability was achieved at a cost that through coercion, this regime was not only willing but able to pay. So we need to take that into account and not forget on whose backs that macroeconomic stability was achieved. As you've said earlier in this podcast and alluded to, the, the part of the rationale for squeezing the peasantry was, as you said, to finance industrialization, which in practice meant exporting grain that otherwise would have gone to the peasants and to the cities and trading that for advanced technology from the West. And given that they ended up producing less grain in total 20 plus years after the start of the revolution than they did before, and they were exporting a lot more than they were at that time, and then clearly that the living standards of, of regular people in the Soviet Union must have been much, much lower. And there was not enough food some years in the Russian Empire under the czars, and they didn't reduce, they didn't diminish the exports because they needed something to pay for that advanced machinery, right? And so this is a long-standing practice that the Soviet regime thought it too would engage in. The period of importation of Western technology was a short one. It was very dramatic. Every single new or refurbished factory of the first and second five-year plan was imported Western technology under Stalin with the sole exception of synthetic rubber. They got everything from the outside, from the West. So no West, no Europe, United States, no Soviet industrialization. But once they got it, once they were able to import versions of it, they then reverse engineered it or they just copied it. If the contract said you're paying for one factory, they paid for the one factory and assembly and then they reproduced it several times over without paying a second, third, or fourth time. In addition, they had some barter contracts where they bartered raw materials. This is what they did with Nazi Germany, for example. It was a barter contract for the most part because the Germans, Nazi Germany, had foreign currency problems, insufficient convertible currency to pay for imports of the kind of raw materials it needed. And so it would trade advanced machine tools, which Stalin wanted, for Soviet raw materials such as oil and grain. And so this process of originally acquiring the Western technology, originally acquiring state-of-the-art, in some cases whole factories, in other cases just individual machines, right? This part was the easier part because it took place during the Great Depression and there wasn't heavy demand in the, in the industrialized West for the capital goods that the Soviets were willing to pay convertible currency for. But then, as I said, that was a short window because then the Soviets either reverse-engineered or simply reproduced without paying for this. And therefore, the, the story is how the Soviets were able to assimilate that Western technology and then, in some cases, to enhance it and, in many cases, to reproduce it for themselves. So that's a pretty impressive achievement during this coercive Stalin despotism. So this seems like a good chance to shift gears and ask a question that I was struck by in, in reading uh, the second volume in your word choice, which is that in 
the first volume, once Stalin becomes preeminent, you refer to him as the dictator. You talk about the dictatorship within the dictatorship. And you refer to him as the dictator. It was about the first third or so of volume two. And then you switch to calling him the despot and you refer to it as a despotism. So what is the difference between these two things and what marks that shift? One of the dynamics at play here is Stalin building his personal dictatorship. So he seizes an opportunity which was presented to him. He perceived and seized the opportunity. He was appointed general secretary of the Communist Party in April 1922. Lenin was the head of the government and the leader of the revolution, acknowledged by all. And so Stalin was effectively the right hand, the functionary, to run the party for Lenin, appointed, as I said, in April 1922. In fact, the general secretary position, Lenin created it expressly for Stalin. The next month, May 1922, Lenin had the first of a series of four incapacitating strokes. And so the number one, who had just appointed, elevated a number two to this all-powerful position, which oversaw the state bureaucracy, the army, the secret police, the diplomatic corps, all secret communications. The guy just appointed to this position, the number two, now has a number one who's had a stroke and is incapacitated. And Stalin seized that moment and built himself a personal dictatorship on the basis of being general secretary of the Communist Party throughout the 1920s. For him, as for many dictators, it was never enough. No matter how much power he accumulated, he somehow needed more. He was insecure. His power was insufficient. There were enemies. There were areas that he didn't cover yet. And so this is one of the paradoxes of power, as I subtitled Volume 1. No matter how much power he had, he still needed more. Now, not every dictator is capable of creating a despotism out of a dictatorship. It's on the wish list of most dictators, but they lack the ability to do so because there are powerful interest groups, there are other powerful clans, powerful big business, the officer corps of the army might be powerful, and so they end up in a bargaining process. It's not an equal bargaining process, but they end up buying off, as we say, the powerful lobby groups or other constituencies of the regime in order to remain first among equals, to remain dictator, they have to make some concessions to the other powerful interests. Stalin instead starts to murder these people. He murders the officer corps, his own loyal officer corps. He murders the secret police while the secret police are murdering everybody. And he breaks his inner circle. These are men absolutely loyal to him. They have not flinched. They've enabled him to build this personal dictatorship within the dictatorship, to crush Trotsky, to crush other potential rivals, to collectivize, that is, enslave the peasantry. These are the men who have done that with him. And now he decides in the mid to late 1930s to break them. And he does break them, and he breaks them all, except potentially Molotov, who is a very tough character. But, for example, Voroshilov, the head of the military, is broken. Kaganovich, Stalin's number one troubleshooter and his principal deputy in the party, is broken. Mikhayan, 
The trade commissar, who's also an important troubleshooter in the regime, is broken. He breaks them in part by scaring them, arresting their relatives, imprisoning their spouses, threatening to imprison them, or hinting he might imprison them, making them fear for their lives at any moment. They're going to be arrested and executed. He also breaks them by forcing them to arrest and murder, that is, execute their loyal subordinates, in some cases their own family members. So they become complicit in the destruction of people for imaginary crimes. So that process you've been just describing, sometimes known as the terror or the purges, you say that it led to the deaths of about a million people and then about another half a million, I believe you said, ended up in, in the prison camp system. You have a lot of interesting explanations for why, complementary explanations for why this happened when it did and why it happened the way it did. One of which you just explained is this idea that Stalin wanted to completely solidify and demonstrate his own power by removing all possible sources of opposition. You have a couple of other theories as well that you describe. One is that this was a, a teaching moment in a sense that it, it basically ended with the publication of this history that he was working on of, of the Bolshevik party. How does that sort of fit in with this? The terror, strange as it may sound, was a theory of rule. All dictators, as I said, with few exceptions, want to increase their power. No matter how much power they have, they want more. Not all of them, as I said, have the capacity to do that, but many of them try. So the idea that Stalin wanted more power is insufficient to explain the terror. Power lust, like I said, is prominent among almost all dictators, and yet most dictators don't murder their own officer corps, their own secret police, their own loyal Communist Party secretaries, their own diplomats, their own intelligence officials. Stalin did that. Those people who were loyalists were murdered. They were executed by the regime. The official statistics have a little under 700,000 executions for the years 1937-38. A large number of people died under interrogation uh, before they were sentenced or before they were deported. And so you get to a number about 850,000 deaths, either execution directly or indirectly through interrogation during these two years. That's a phenomenal number. And those are communists for the most part, not all of them, but a lot of them are communists that he's killing. Can you imagine if Adolf Hitler murdered the Gauleiter, murdered the SS, murdered the officer corps, murdered the diplomats, murdered his intelligence officials? Can you imagine if he murdered all of them and then in the process he got them to confess that they were working for the Soviet Union, Judeo-Bolshevism, they were working for Judeo-Bolshevism, these staunch Nazis, and the larger population gave credence to this. You couldn't possibly imagine under the Nazi regime that Hitler would murder his own loyalists, that they would confess to imaginary crimes of working for the enemy like Judeo-Bolshevism, and that the populace would, in many cases, accept these fables. That's what happened in the Soviet case. So the burden of explanation is really high. And power lust is just not going to get you there. Stalin had the power lust. It was part of the dynamic. It's undeniable. But much more 
was going on. Stalin had a theory of rule, and that this theory of rule entailed having people be fearful, and their fearfulness would enable a greater internal mobilization, not just for his personal power, but for the power of the country. So he was reading throughout the 1930s more and more books about tyranny, about Roman emperors, ancient history, trying to figure out himself how to be a tyrant. And it looks like he decided that he would teach the population through these showcase trials, through these confessions, these public confessions, through the constant barrage of the propaganda about internal and external enemies, that he would teach them a story about danger and how they themselves needed to mobilize and be pure and overcome this danger. And so the strangest thing about this episode known as the Great Terror is that it culminates in the short course history of the Bolshevik Party. And Stalin has a multi-day conference which takes place during the Munich Pact negotiations, the infamous Munich Pact of 1938. During that Munich Pact, Stalin is with his propagandists explaining the transcendent importance of the short course history of the Bolshevik Party, which is the pedagogy, which is the gift to the next generation on the other side of this pedagogical exercise known as the terror. Even though I just said what I said, it's incredible to me even. Right. I mean, one of the other points you make in, in, in this process is that because he's killed so many people, there's this whole new cohort that gets promoted. Partly, this is sort of a deliberate thing, the idea of the new people. And, and you have this figure, what is it, most overwhelmingly, the number of senior people are under the age of 35 the end of this process. And then, of course, a lot of them have trouble understanding what's in, in the book that he wrote. But there's a sort of a, I don't know if you use this exact word, but there's sort of a populist element that part of the reason the Russian people were okay with what was going on is that most of the victims of the terror were people they perceived to be as elites and that the regular workers sort of enjoyed seeing this happen, or at least they didn't mind it. You got to elaborate on, was that sort of yeah, deliberate? So it's a socialist regime. What are they doing with an elite stratum? How did they get a new ruling class? How do they get people living better than other people, conspicuously, with larger apartments, with apartments in the first place, while the rest of the population is living in dugout mud huts or in barracks or in train cars that are parked on sidings or in tents, right? How come they have more food on their table and how come they have maids and chauffeur-driven cars and what happened here? This was socialism. In 1917, we overthrew imperialist, capitalist evil. We overthrew exploitation and alienation. And now we have a Soviet ruling class, fat cats. And so there was resentment in the society. That doesn't mean the society is responsible for the murder that Stalin uh, forced on the country. It doesn't mean that everybody was happy. Many people lost loved ones, innocent loved ones during this process. But nonetheless, there's a current of populism running through it, which is intentional on Stalin's part, which plays to this anger or resentment at the creation or the self-styled new ruling stratum. Stalin has to explain in Marxist terms 
the class structure of Soviet society. Because after all, Marxists have to explain everything through class. Capitalism understood. Right? There's the universal working class exploited by the bourgeoisie, and there's this petty bourgeois peasant class that has to disappear over time. But what about Soviet social structure? Stalin decides that there were two classes, the working class and the peasantry, and that they are in alliance. So the peasantry as a class is rehabilitated. It's no longer petty bourgeois because it's collectivized. And so therefore the workers are in the lead, but they're in alliance with the no longer petty bourgeois collectivized peasantry. And then he uses the term stratum for another group, which he calls the Soviet intelligentsia or the working intelligentsia. He doesn't allow them to be a class. And he uses the word intelligentsia, which of course is a Russian word, the intelligence or the brain of the nation. And he uses it to hide the fact that he's speaking about the new Soviet ruling class, what we might call apparatchiks or people of the apparatus, those people who are functionaries, paper pushers, bureaucrats, officials. All of that is subsumed under this idea of the Soviet intelligentsia or the laboring intelligentsia, right? the stratum, not a class. And so these new people, the beneficiaries of the Great Terror, those who are promoted to dizzying heights now, to very substantial responsibilities when they're barely educated, barely out of school, barely had much school, let alone barely out of it. Those people, the beneficiaries, are now this Soviet intelligentsia, working, laboring intelligentsia. And Stalin says that the short course history of the Bolshevik Party is intended for you, for these people. You are those who are going to lead this great socialist state to its continual triumphs and build communism. And so these people naturally, many of them are quite pleased to have risen up, to have been promoted, to have achieved this higher status and greater responsibility. And their personal growth mirrors the growth of the country because 850,000 are either executed or die in, under interrogation, but many millions more are promoted to positions of higher responsibility. However, they're morally tainted by the fact that they're stepping over these corpses. In many cases, they're directly complicit in the execution of their predecessors, but even in cases where they're not directly complicit, Stalin has tainted them by promoting them into the space of murdered people. Now, the apparatus is also growing, so many of them are promoted to positions that didn't exist before. So no matter how many are killed, the demand for new people is infinite. And Stalin elaborates a full theory of people of the socialist epoch, new people as he calls them, Soviet people, pure people, and he thinks that they will be untainted by what came before. They don't have one foot in the Tsarist era and one foot in the Soviet era. They were never part of some Trotskyite band in the 1920s. And they're also, in some ways, beyond the horrors of collectivization because they're products of the industrial side. 
of the regime. They're part of that urban industrial revolution. And so this group, the loyal beneficiaries of the Soviet regime, will be the ones that age and create that gerontocracy, that Brezhnev era of the 70s that we know. And Brezhnev himself is one of these people. So one of the things that's fascinating when you look at the terror and that entire period is that the people who live and who die, it's not obvious what distinguishes those people, that many people who you think were loyal executors of Stalin's will, people like, for example, uh, Yezhov, the head of the secret police, he's killed. People like Voroshilov are not killed. Somehow you have someone like Khrushchev surviving. Was there a logic to how that played out, or was it essentially sort of good luck and randomness that the people who survived survived? There is a logic. Uh, some people are spared because Stalin decides to spare them. He makes a personal decision to spare them. And others are killed because Stalin decides to kill them, regardless of what each group has done. Meaning, they can have the same biography, they engage in the same activities, they can be smeared the same way, but he spares one and doesn't spare the other. So you get into Stalin's brain and you explain to me why one was killed and one was spared. That's a very difficult proposition. Right? On the other hand, some people, for example, uh, musicians, it's clear that Stalin didn't want them to die because he valued them really highly. Other people he put less value on and didn't mind if they died, that is to say, didn't prevent their being executed if someone else took initiative or he was complicit in putting them on the list himself. So it's it's, it's not completely random. There is a, a, some logic to it, but then there is a randomness in addition that is very difficult to explain. And the people themselves at the time were unable to explain, including police officials in many cases, why person X was spared and person Y was killed or imprisoned. So to look at the terror, to look at any situation like that of mass execution, which is carried out uh, by orders of Stalin in in specific cases and then uh, more indirectly because of a quota system that they used where he didn't name the specific people to be killed, but he named large numbers and created incentives to exceed those numbers. To look at that and explain the individual fate of anybody who survived is very, very difficult. So we could probably stay here for another two hours, but just one last question to end this to the extent that Stalin was the authentic heir of Lenin, at least perceived himself and modeled himself as what Lenin would have done, jumping ahead a little bit, after Stalin dies, the Russian government, the Soviet Union decides to repudiate part of his legacy and say, oh, that wasn't really what he meant. We're going to change things. Was that a betrayal of the, re the spirit of the revolution? It's very hard for Stalin's successors, and it was a group rather than a single individual. It's very hard for Stalin's successors to deal with his legacies. They're complicit in those legacies. They're not innocents. But nonetheless, right? you get the Khrushchev era, and the Soviet Union is producing 1.5 socks per capita under Khrushchev. Now, you probably are in agreement that most people have two feet. And so 1.5 socks per capita, even if evenly distributed somehow across the population, 
is going to be insufficient. Then you have a gigantic population in the gulag or the labor camps. A very substantial number of the able-bodied male population of working age is wasting away at forced labor in frozen wastes. And they revolt. They erupt. Some of them are veterans of the World War II Eastern Front, and they're not really afraid of many things. They've looked death in the eye during the war, and they understand that they can die by doing nothing, by being passive. And when some of them take initiative, whole camp complexes erupt in revolt. So you have these impossible legacies and this seething Stalinist labor camp, and you have a geopolitical situation of overstretch to simplify. And so within that, what were their options? Their problem is, however, that there is no socialism with a human face, as the cliche had it during the Prague Spring, because it already had a human face, and that face was Stalin's face. There was no possibility to de-Stalinize the system in a way that was ultimately stabilizing. Every time they tried to remove Stalin from the system and reform the system, tinker with the system, they began a process of unintentional liquidation. And so, as Brezhnev said during the Prague Spring, reform is counter-revolution or the end of the system. And he was exactly right, as Gorbachev would prove him after Brezhnev died. And so this attempt to deal with Stalin's legacies right, is doomed in many ways. When Khrushchev denounces Stalin in the so-called secret speech behind closed doors at the Party Congress in 1956, he doesn't denounce collectivization of agriculture. He doesn't denounce a state-owned and state-managed economy. He doesn't denounce the socialist property relations. They want to keep that. They want to keep the system that Stalin has built, but without Stalin. Well, good luck with that. Stephen Cockton, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for your time. Greatly appreciate it. And that is the end of Matt's interview with Stephen Kotkin. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one because we are based in the U.S. Or email us at alphachat at ft.com. Matt has written a really great post to accompany this podcast, and you can find that at ft.com forward slash alphachat. And finally, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes. We really appreciate that, and it helps people find out about the show. And as always, thanks to our amazing producer and editor, Amy Keene. And thanks to you, our listeners. We'll be here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.